This episode of HBR is brought to you by anhonesthost.com. Get 15% discount on all shared hosting with the offer code HPR15. That's HPR15. Better web hosting that's honest and fair at anhonesthost.com. Hello, this is Ahuka, welcoming you to Hacker Public Radio and another exciting episode in our security and privacy series. And in this one, what I want to do is I want to give you a way of thinking sensibly about security. Uh, And to do this, uh, I'm going to be pulling on some stuff done by real smart security people, in particular for this one, Bruce Schneier. Now, If you cast your mind back to 2001, there was a certain incident on September 11th that led many people to go, Oh my God, we are doomed. We must increase security, do whatever it takes. And the NSA was happy to oblige. And on uh, 7-7-05, July 7th of 2005, an attack in London added to the frenzy. I think it is fair to say that these security agencies felt they were given a mandate to do anything as long as it stops the attacks. And thus was the overwhelming attack on privacy moved to a whole level higher. Now to be clear, security agencies are always pushing the limits. It is in their DNA. And politicians have learned that you never lose votes by insisting on stronger security and appearing tough. But the reality is that security is never 100%. And the higher the level of security, the greater the costs in terms of our privacy and liberty. And it is also the case that total insistence on liberty and privacy would cause your security to go down as well. So, you should not adopt any simple-minded approach to this problem. In general, as you add layers of security, each added layer gives you less benefit. Some simple security steps can give you a lot, but as you add more and more, the added benefit drops, and this is an example of what we call the law of diminishing returns. By the same token, each added measure extracts an ever-increasing cost in terms of the loss of liberty and privacy. Conceptually, you could draw a couple of curves, one rising for the costs, the other falling for the benefits. Look for where the curves cross to determine the optimum level of security that balances the costs and benefits. In practice, it's not that simple. Measuring these costs and benefits is tricky, and there is no simple equation for either curve. Nonetheless, a balance of some kind does need to be struck. Uh, And I want to be clear that my position is I, I don't think we should get rid of all government security services. 
I, I don't think that spying is one of those things that no one should ever do for any reason. And I think they very often do valuable things. In some cases, I'd like to see them do more. You know, when we take a look at cybersecurity um, and how do we secure computer systems, I think it's a very valuable role for government experts in helping to make this happen. Uh, so I, I'm, not, I'm not an anarchist about all of this, but uh, my, my position is you have to strike a balance, and as a member of the public, I think I need to have my voice heard about this. So... Uh, in the wake of the 9-11 attacks, Bruce Schneier published a book called Beyond Fear, Thinking Sensibly About Security in an Uncertain World. It came out in 2003. In this book, he shows that hysteria is not a good approach to security and that you need to ask yourself some questions to see what the cost versus benefit calculation looks like for you. I'm going to draw on his model to talk about security as we are discussing it in this series. Now, you've probably all heard the old joke about what constitutes a secure computer. And the answer is, is, is that it has to be locked in a vault with no network connection and no power connection. And even then you need to worry about who can access the vault. Now, it's a joke in the sense that no one would ever do this. We use computers in the Internet because of the benefits they give us, and having a computer in a vault with no network connection and no power connection is just a waste of money. We accept a certain degree of risk because that's the only way to get the benefits we want. So, how does Schneier approach this? He suggests a five-step process. For any security measure you are contemplating, you need to have a clear-eyed, rational look at the costs and benefits, and Bruce's five-step process looks to accomplish this. This is a series of questions you need to ask in order to figure out if this particular measure makes any sense. So question number one. What assets are you trying to protect? This is what defines the initial problem. Any proposed countermeasure needs to specifically protect these assets. You need to understand why these assets are valuable, how they work, and what are attackers going after and why. So if your problem is that someone has been stealing the email out of your mailbox and your security measure is to lock the back door, hmm, we've got kind of a mismatch there. Locking the bad back door may or may not be a good thing to do. In many cases, it's probably a good thing to do. But it's not going to stop anyone from stealing your mail. All right? So what are the risks against these assets? Now, to do this, you need to analyze who threatens the assets. What are their goals? How might they try to attack your assets to achieve these goals? you need to be on the lookout for how changes in technology might affect this analysis. Right? The risks are going to be a changing thing as the technology changes. For instance, we've talked a lot about encryption in this series. That's what we started off with. And we talked about creating keys and one of the things we said was the expectation by NIST 
uh, was that uh, 2048-bit PGP would stand up to attack until the year 2030. Now, they come up with that by making estimates of how quickly uh, computing power is increasing, you know, looking at Moore's Law and things like that. If there's a breakthrough in quantum computing, that's going to change everything. Uh, Now, if there's a breakthrough in quantum computing, our standard ways of encryption uh, almost immediately become like tissue. Uh, On the other hand, what I haven't heard too many people say yet is if we have a breakthrough in quantum computing, maybe there is a new way of doing encryption. (laughs) You know, it is kind of an arms race here. But you need to keep up with what's going on in technology. Question three, how well does the security solution mitigate the risk? Now, mitigate is a useful term here as opposed to totally eliminate because very rarely do you totally eliminate a risk. Uh, Very often it's just a matter of making it not worth anyone's while. Um, You know, I remember a a joke about two campers who are out in the woods and all of a sudden they realize that there's a bear who is prowling around their campsite and one of the guys says, all right, I got to get my track shoes. The other guy says, well, track shoes aren't going to help. You can't outrun a bear. And the first guy says, don't have to. I just have to outrun you. <laughs> uh, you know, mitigation is uh, very often uh, a case of making it just, you know, giving yourself a little edge, you know. Um, you know, a good example of mitigation is locking your front door. Most of us do that, at least in the United States. Maybe where you are, it's different. Uh, I always lock my front door when I leave in the morning. Could someone still break into my house? Yeah, they could. It's a little harder if the door's locked. So to me, that is a reasonable amount of safety. You know, if they have to break down the door that, you know, might get noticed by the neighbors, someone might call the police, uh, and... Generally, the feeling is if you just make it a, a process where they, they move on to some other place that's easier to deal with, then you've achieved your goal. So understand your countermeasure. All right, How will it protect the asset when it works properly? But you, know, you also need to take into account what happens when it fails, because no security measure is 100% foolproof. And everyone will fail at some point in some circumstances. A fragile system fails badly. A resilient system handles failure well. Think about that. A fragile system fails badly. A resilient system handles failure well. One of the things about 9-11 that I have not heard enough people talk about is that the experts didn't do a damn thing that was useful. It was individual people. All right. Individual people are resilient. Security systems tend to be very fragile. Now, a security measure could be slightly less effective under ideal conditions, but handle failure much better, and that might make it the optimum choice. 
So that's one of the things you need to think about. Another one is a measure that guards against one risk may increase vulnerability somewhere else. And then you've got to watch out for the whole false positive versus false negative trade-off. It is a truism that any set of measures designed to reduce the number of false negatives will increase the number of false positives. And vice versa. Reduce the false positives, the false negatives will go up. Now, a false positive is when you think you've discovered an attack and you didn't, really. A false negative is where you think everything's fine and yet you really are under attack. You know, both of those are problems. Question four. What other risks does the security solution cause? Security countermeasures always interact with each other. And the rule is that all security countermeasures cause additional security risks. Question five. What trade-offs does the security solution require? Every security countermeasure affects everything else in the system. It affects the functionality of the assets being protected. It affects all related or connected systems. And they all have a cost. Frequently, but not always, financial, but also in terms of usability, convenience, and freedom. So these are the five steps that you want to go through to evaluate. Uh, and you don't just do this once. You need to reevaluate as the systems evolve, as the technology changes. Uh, there's a saying, security is a process. And that's really what we're talking about. Now, I'm going to take a look at a very common one. Uh, and in fact, it's going to set me up. <laughs> because I want to talk about this some more uh, going forward, and that's passwords. And we'll take a look at that in this context. So I have a, a cartoon on the wall of my cubicle at work that shows an alert box. It says, password must contain an uppercase letter, a punctuation mark, a three-digit prime number, and a Sanskrit hieroglyph. I think the only thing they left out was a squirrel noise. Now, we've all encountered this. It does get frustrating. This is a humorous take on something that is an accepted best practice. I recall a story about a fellow who worked at a company that insisted he regularly changed his password and would also remember the eight previous passwords and not let him use any of them again. But he liked the one he had, so he spent a few minutes changing his password nine times in a row, the last time being back to his favored password. Now, was he a threat to security, or was the corporate policy misguided? Let's try Bruce's model and see where we get. What assets is the company trying to protect? Now, I think this has several possible answers. The company may want to prevent unauthorized access to corporate data on its network. Or the company wants to prevent unauthorized use of its resources, possibly with legal implications. And the company may be concerned to prevent damage to its network. All of these are good reasons to try and control who has access to this asset and to protect it. 
But knowing which of these is being targeted may matter when we get to trade-offs and effectiveness of the proposed countermeasures. For now, let's assume the primary interest is in preventing unauthorized access to the data, such as credit card numbers on an e-commerce site. Question 2. What are the risks against these assets? Well, if we're talking about credit card numbers, the risk is that criminals could get their hands on these numbers. From the company's standpoint, though, the risk is what can happen to them if this occurs. Will this cause them to assume financial penalties? Will the CEO be hauled in front of legislative committees? Will their insurance premiums rise as a result? This is the sort of thing companies really care about. And when you understand this, you begin to see why companies all adopt the same policies. When people talk about best practices, you should not assume that anyone has actually determined in a rational manner what the best practices should be. It only means that they are protected in some sense when things go wrong. After all, they followed the industry best practices. The biggest failure of security is when companies or organizations just apply a standard set of rules instead of creating a process of security. I see this criticized constantly in my daily newsletter from the Sands Institute. Question 3. How well does the security solution mitigate the risks? This becomes a question of whether forcing people to change their passwords frequently is a significantly effective measure in preventing unauthorized access to computer networks. And here's where things really start to break down. It is very difficult to come up with many examples of cases where a password in use for a long time leads to unauthorized access. That's simply not how these things work. We know that the majority of these cases derive from one of two problems social engineering to get people to give up their password, and malware that people manage to get on their computer one way or another. Now, how does that work? Uh, it, it constantly, let's take social engineering f for number one. We're always hearing stories about how some security company, uh, I have a friend who does this kind of testing for his customers. He's a security professional. And, uh, you know, the first thing they do when they're evaluating the security is they start calling people up and something, oh, uh, hi, I'm from the IT department. Um, I just am trying to verify something. Could you give me your password? And about half the time, people will. Uh, this has been done over and over again. All you have to do is, you know, plausibly look like you're the sort of person they ought to give this stuff to. Um, now, does changing your passwords frequently stop that attack? No. Doesn't do a damn thing. Now, the other one is uh, people managing to get malware. Okay? Uh, RSA, which is a security company, they lost the keys to the kingdom. They lost the keys to the RSA security tokens from malware because a secretary clicked a link in an email. Um, 
there there was a uh, attack levied against Iranian facilities, and the medium for that was, and, and it's pretty clear now, it was some combination of the U.S. government and the Israeli government that worked on all of this. Um, and uh, the way they got it on there was by dropping USB keys on the ground in the vicinity of the facility, figuring, well, someone will pick it up and say, oh, look, USB key, lucky me, plug it into their computer, and then the software would get in there. There's lots of ways to do this, okay? Uh, Making people change their passwords won't guard against any of these things. And and this is really the thing. You've got a, a policy that everyone complies with, because it is a best practice. And when you look at it, it does not guard against the risks that are out there. Now, can you make an argument that forcing people to frequently change passwords might, in rare cases, actually do some good? Maybe. But there's no way to say that this is, in general, an effective countermeasure against unauthorized access. It simply isn't. Question four, what other risks does the security solution cause? There are several possible risks that come out of this. First, since all security measures require a variety of resources, and remember, people's time and attention is one of those resources, emphasizing one security measure may take resources away from more effective measures that don't get sufficient attention. But there are also risks from how people act in response to this policy. In the ideal world of the security department, each person with access would choose a long, complicated password each time, chosen for maximum entropy, and then memorized but never written down. Yeah, that'll happen. Sadly for the security department, they have to deal with actual human beings who do not do any of these things. Most people, at the very least, consider this an annoyance. Some may actively subvert the system, like the fellow in our story who changed his password nine times in a row to get back to the one he liked. But even without this type of subversion, we know what people will do. If you let them, they will choose something that is easy to remember as their first attempt, and that means they will most likely choose a password that can easily be cracked in a dictionary attack. If you instead insist that each password contain letters, numbers, upper and lower case, a Sanskrit hieroglyph, and two squirrel noises, they will write it down, probably on a yellow sticky note, attached to their monitor. If the person in question is a top executive, of course it gets even worse because they don't put up with the BS that the ordinary worker bees have to tolerate. Question 5. What trade-offs does the security solution require? Well, this policy causes a major impact on usability and convenience, and all of this for a policy that we saw above actually accomplishes very little. In the majority of organizations, the IT department is viewed with a certain amount of hostility, and this is part of it. In addition, anyone in an IT help desk can tell you that they get a lot of calls from people who cannot log in because they forgot their password, 
which is a natural consequence of forcing people to keep changing it. So, bottom line, what does all this mean in the final analysis? I think it means you need to carefully consider which measures are actually worth taking. And this is, at least in part, a cost versus benefit analysis. For instance, as I have initially written this, the Heartbleed vulnerability was in the news, and I got to hear Bruce Schneier discuss how people should react, and he did not say, oh my god, change all your passwords right now. He said you should assess the case. If it is your password to log into your bank, probably something you want to change. But if it was some social network you access once every two weeks, he said, eh, don't bother. And that seems reasonable. And as another example, although I have discussed how to encrypt emails and digitally sign them, that does not mean I open up GPG every time I send an email. It is something of a pain in the posterior to do, and I use it judiciously. I don't see the point in digitally signing every email when a lot of it is just stupid stuff anyway. So, I'm going to give three final rules from Bruce Schneier. All of this is in his book, Beyond Fear, by the way. And he goes into this in much more depth. Rule number one, risk demystification. You need to take the time to understand what the actual risk is and understand just how effective any proposed security countermeasure would be. There will always be a trade-off. If the risk is low and the countermeasure is not particularly effective, why are you doing this? Saying, we must do everything in our power to prevent uh, a risk that is unlikely, and where the countermeasures are not likely to work, is how you get to what Snowden revealed. Rule number two, secrecy demystification. Secrecy is the enemy of security. You get that? Secrecy is the enemy of security. If you're looking for security, making things secret doesn't get you there. Security can only happen when problems are discussed, not when discussions are forbidden. Secrecy will always break down at some point. See above Snowden. This is the failure mode of security by obscurity. Most often, secrecy is used to cover up incompetence or malfeasance. Rule number three, agenda demystification. People have agendas and will often use security as an excuse for something that is not primarily a security measure. And emotions can lead people to make irrational trade-offs. So, with that, this is Ahuka uh, signing off, and as always, reminding you to support free software. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. 
Eka Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.